The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. Here's what's ahead this hour on The Exchange. Economic data are coming in week again as housing starts now disappoint. But one fund manager who's up 33% this year is continuing to bet on both housing and the consumer. We'll ask him if he fears the Fed's taper. Plus, Robinhood releases its first results as a public company after the bell today, like you just heard Jim and Scott discussing. Can it live up to the meme stock hype? And Kathy Wood goes on offense. Crypto takes over emerging markets and controversy, as always, in China. Let's start off with the markets, though. Dom Chu is here with the numbers after that big drop at this time yesterday. At the same time yesterday, and it came back, closing well off the lows, right, Kelly? So what we have today is much more muted of a situation, and for good reason, because those Fed minutes are coming out in just a little bit of time, about an hour or so, and many traders and investors are waiting to see what the latest signals are from the Fed with regard to what the inflation outlook is like, whether the interest rate picture will change, maybe rates go higher in the coming months. So a holding pattern. The Dow Industrial is just about two-tenths of one percent of the downside, 55 modest points. The S&P down by about six points, about two-tenths of one percent there as well. And the Nasdaq just about flat on the day, an outperformer, if you will, on a relative basis. If you take a look at one part of the market that has taken a lot of a beating over the last couple of days here, and even over the last two weeks, it's been the semiconductors coming off some of those highs that we've seen. KLA Corporation, Applied Materials, and the Vanek Vector Semiconductor ETF ticker SMH. Over the last week, you can see down 6%, down 4%, down 3% overall. Now, again, coming off some fairly high levels, but still, on the technology side, if those semiconductors start to fall, could it tell you that maybe other parts are going to fall as well? It's a key industry to watch here. And then the earnings reports of the day, it's still very retail heavy. Target and Lowe's. Very different reaction for Lowe's. Better than expected numbers, up 10% on the session so far today. Target shares down about 1.8%. Here's what I would say, though. On an intraday basis, it looks terrible. However, Target shares have been on a massive tear over the course of the last several months, the last year plus at this point, a real beneficiary Kelly of the COVID pandemic, a lot of changing shopping trends there. Still, though, look at lows and Target over the last kind of maybe year to day period or so. A huge move higher. Target lows, still a big focus for traders and investors. Kelly, send things yeah, back. Yeah, Target up 40% year to date. Walmart only 4%, so maybe some profit taking. Dom, thanks. But let's stick with that theme on the consumer. The recent spate of weaker than expected economic data, including retail sales yesterday, consumer sentiment on Friday. And now the housing data this morning, they're raising doubt not only about the consumer, but the economy's momentum. The Fed's James Bullard spooking markets with his with his hawkish remarks about the taper uh, just a little bit uh, earlier today. Now, the Smead Value Fund is up more than 30 percent this year, and they are still betting on a surge in consumer spending for years to come. Top holdings in the Morningstar Five Star Fund include Target, as we were just discussing, American Express, Lennar, and Simon Property Group. And joining me now is Bill Smead. He's the portfolio manager of the Smead Value Fund and chief investment officer at Smead Capital Management. Bill, it's great to see you. You know, in housing in particular, there's some signs that it's rolling over, don't you think? <laughs> no, Kelly. It, it's so bizarre. Uh, there's, there's too much ch- uh, money chasing too few goods. 
which by the way is the classic definition of inflation and it takes it'll take five to ten years to cure this problem but curing the problem is building houses so what happened is we had some tightness in materials and prices went bonkers for a few months and the, the companies have just organized themselves around slowing things down temporarily to let the inputs and labor catch up to what they're doing. But there's 39.5% more millennials than there was Gen Xers. So, so over the next 10 years, you have 39.5% more demand. And by the way, in the economy itself, worrying about the economy because the variant would mean that you'd have to have things as miserable as they are right now all the time for the next five years. And I, I have more confidence in our 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 scientists and, and medicine companies. So one more on housing, and then I want to broaden it out a little bit. But because you've stuck with the builders, I mean, it's interesting. You you know, I could see a, a case to be made as a manager of saying, we've done really well with this trade. We've absolutely hit the bullseye. We're going to take some profits and put that money to work elsewhere. Why stick with the home builders right now? Boy, that's a wonderful question. Can I, I'd love to have you go on the road with me. Uh, the Our competitive advantage in the value space is we hold our winners to a fault. Hmm. Uh, it, you know, Buffett and Munger hold their winners to a fault, hmm. right? So do you want to sell a business with a bright five to 10 year future at 10 times earnings like Lennar and Dr. Horton? It, it, it's crazy. I mean, you could very possibly get 15% compounded earnings growth the next five to 10 years, and you're paying 10 times earnings to get at that. Whereas People are out there paying 28 times earnings for that same kind of earnings growth out of technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, and I know that you've talked a lot about how you think that sort of paying up for big tech doesn't make sense anymore. That said, they're still turning in nice performance, but obviously so have the home builders. So you still think they have a, a ton of runway ahead of them. Let's go through some of these other holdings as well. The likes of Target, which, as I mentioned, is up 40 percent again this year. You know, we've talked about how well they've come out of the pandemic. So... You, you hang on to a name like that. You hang on to the what is the catalyst then that you're looking for that tells you we're towards the end of this expansion or this rotation that you've been calling for quite some time? Well, if we ever get a chance, everybody at the company will give Jeff Bezos a big hug for going into the grocery business because hmm. we bought that stock when he announced he was going into the grocery business. There was a mass panic. You bought Target. Of, tar- we bought Target. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know quadrupled plus dividends since then. And so it was ridiculously undervalued. They priced it as if there was going to be a depression. Uh, 60% of the college graduates the last 15 years are women. So we're going to have an awful lot of households with college-educated moms. And college-educated moms want to shop at Target. So (laughs) even though they've had a great run, the next 10 years look really bright because there's 39.5% more college-educated moms than the prior generation and therefore yeah i have to put blinders on when i go in there because i walk out with like eight things from birth and home and (laughs) yeah all right let me let me just walk through this a little bit more you know you have specific stocks i could continue to get into but i want to just ask a bigger picture question here as the markets have some nervousness around the fed's taper james bullard today talking about maybe completing it by the first quarter of next year maybe you know thinks it's already priced in even and, and the dollar's rallying and people are you know a little bit jittery about that time frame. What do you think is going yeah. to end up happening with the Fed here? What's the right move? What's the move you expect? I have the simplest answer for that, and it has to do with playing the game of monopoly. If you quadruple the amount of money in the bank of the game monopoly, you don't cause any inflation because the only way you can inflate the game is to give the players more money at the start, 
pay more for pass and go and put more money in free parking. Well, guess what? We did that. We, we quadrupled the amount of money in the bank. We gave, we gave unemployment to people who weren't unemployed. We did rent abatement. Yeah. Um, just looking through your other top holdings, yeah. Lennar and VR, Simon Property, Masterich, eBay, uh, and Mark. Bill, as always, we could spend you know, so much more time going through these, but we really appreciate the time you could give us today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bill Smead with a vote of confidence in housing, the consumer, and the American economy. Speaking of which, let's get over to the bond market now where 20-year bonds just went up for auction. Rick Santelli has the results. How'd it go, Rick? You know, I'm pretty well. B as in boy is the grade I gave demand. It's straight up one Eastern on this 20-year Dutch auction. 27 billion of those brand new 20 years have just hit the street at the yield of 1.85, which is pretty much right in the middle of the when issue bid and offer spread. And if we go through the internals, 2.44 bid to cover was the best since March of 21, not that long ago, but still a nice bid to cover, all things considered. Maybe the third best out of the last 14, 20-year auctions. The 62.3 on indirects, very important. That's the best since October of 20, and that represents the camp of foreign buyers we're always so interested in, especially if we're starting to ask the big question. After the Fed stops buying, who's going to take their place? I don't think the government's going to stop spending. And finally, if we look at 19% that dealers took, that was pretty aggressive, too. They didn't leave much on the buffet table. So B is in boy. And, of course, we're all awaiting the minutes to the last meeting to see exactly what whispers were in the room. We know Delta variant's going to make this difficult. And sometimes the weak link defines the chain. Kelly, back to you. Quick follow-up question, Rick. Before we get those minutes, we've already heard from James Bullard today. What did you make of his remarks? I think the most important thing uh, that I read regarding James Bullard is whether or not he's going to be alive when the Fed's balance sheet gets back down to more moderate levels. I know that's half comical, but when you really think about it, if the runoff is just as these securities expire, it takes a long time to drain $8 trillion. And I do believe that the demand at the auctions is something to consider moving forward and its effects on interest rates. All right. Rick, thank you. Rick Santelli out at the CME. Now, in what could be considered a pretty bold move, airline veteran David Nealman decided to launch an airline in March of this year called Breeze Airways. His goal was to serve what he called neglected and forgotten markets. The bet seems to be paying off. The company says it had more than 100,000 passengers since launching. And today, Breeze Airways announced a $200 million new round of funding for its expansion plans. Joining me now, Phil Lebeau is with the CEO of Breeze Airways. David Nealman, welcome to you both. Phil? Kelly, thank thank you you very much. David's joining us from the uh, Breeze headquarters in Salt Lake City, Utah. Uh, David, we talked about the $200 million that you just announced in a fundraising. Uh, Tell us what that money is going towards. Will you be adding even more aircraft uh, to your your order list already? Because you're already on the books for for 60 Airbus A220s. Yes. uh, You know, I I think there's just a lot of opportunities right now in, in the aviation business. You know, we're flying the Embraer's right now, and we're seeing those planes are very inexpensive. So we'll use that capital to, you know, possibly buy some additional airplanes, spare parts, spare engines, just all things to drive down our costs even lower than they already are to make us more efficient. And just also to send a message, you know, this is a very competitive business, you know, and, and sometimes very predatory. And, and just to send a message to our competitors, we're here to stay. You know, it, it's... Uh, I raised $135 million to start JetBlue, and so $300 million to start Breeze is, is really amazing, and, and it's going to you know, set us up for many, many years to come. 
David, have you noticed any impact on passenger levels or on bookings and cancellations as COVID and the Delta variant have spread increasingly around the country? I mean, what are you looking at for uh, booking levels for the fall? Yeah, we were down a little bit. Um, we ran a sell this last week and we're up 20 percent, you know, week over week. So, you know, the business can be stimulated. You know, I, I was in London uh, this past weekend on the JetBlue inaugural to Heathrow, and I was really heartened to see London was back to normal after a de- Delta variant. And so we're already seeing, you know, some peaks in, in, in the Delta variant. So we're really hopeful that by the fourth quarter, things will really start trending down again, just like they have in India and, and, uh, and England. So, um, you know, the future is really bright. We're really excited uh, with this new investment and, and we're off to a great start. What about vaccinations? Are you requiring that everybody at Breeze be vaccinated? Uh, we're not, uh, but we're asking that if you're not vaccinated, you wear a mask to the office. And uh, we are requiring uh, vaccinations for new hire people who come to work for us. But for those that were hired before, we're not requiring that you're vaccinated, but we like we'll ask you to wear a mask. And if you've been vaccinated, uh, of course, no mask required because we, we really believe in the science. David, you alluded to uh, raising $135 million to start JetBlue back in the day. Uh, so this is not your first rodeo, and everybody knows that. How does this market compare in terms of looking for additional funding for starting up an airline to what you've seen over the last 20 or 30 years? You know, it helps to have a track record. You know, I think it was a pretty big accomplishment to, to get $135 million for JetBlue back 23 years ago. But since then... You know, I've done Azul, and Azul's been tremendously successful in Brazil. It's the largest airline in Brazil now. Incredible success. And so BlackRock and Nighthead are both uh, investors in Azul, and so they know our management team. They know me well, and so that certainly makes it a lot easier to to grow. And then our business plan, it's amazing. You know, there's so many markets that have, don't have nonstop service, and we're able to generate 10 times the amount of traffic, uh, increase these market sizes by 10 times by offering – you know, we can we can get people there twice as fast for half the price, and our customers love it. I was reviewing some NPS scores today, and customers are loving flying on Breeze. So it really is great for our future. Quickly, David, uh, we're showing a route map for you guys right now. When we talked to you in May, uh, the day of your first flight, you said, hey, look, if the big boys want to come after us in a certain market, we'll just pick up our planes and go somewhere else. Has that happened in any of the, uh, the markets that you have launched with? No, not at all. Um, you know, the markets are there. And like I said, you know, we, if we take 10% from them of what we're flying, you know, probably not. And so they're seeing that we're not affecting that. We're just generating traffic. So we haven't seen, you know, any kind of competitive response that way at all, which, which now with $300 million in, pay in, in the bank, you know, it's certainly not going to go out of their way to, met, to come after us when they're not even in those markets anyways. David Nealman, founder and CEO of Breeze Airways, joining us from the company's headquarters in Salt Lake City. David, thank you very much. Kelly, what's interesting here is, thank you, David, is what's interesting, Kelly, is you heard his answer at the beginning. You got to send a message. And David Nealman is not afraid to send a message that Breeze is not going away. Look, are they going to grow to be the size of some of the other competitors immediately? Not immediately, but he's made it clear that Breeze is here to stay.
you have to give him a huge amount of credit for launching an airline in a pandemic, <laughs> if nothing else. Yeah. Phil, thank you so much for bringing that to us. You we bet. appreciate it. Phil LeBeau. Coming up, restaurants are racing to build out their digital pipelines, driving stock gains that are equal to or even surpassing big tech over the past year. How is fast food beating the fang trade? We'll explore that. Plus, Robinhood is set to release its first post-IPO results after the bell today. Only 20 days since going public. But do the real results even matter? Will meme stock momentum move shares higher no matter what? We're back in a minute. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash methane. Welcome back. Digital orders are driving growth at some of the biggest restaurants as they build out their tech platforms. Kate Rogers has a deeper dive into the industry's dining innovation. And for coffee, burritos, and pizza. But could they be more? I think Domino's is a tech company with a fabulous online ordering platform that happens to sell tasty pizzas. It's not a dream. And it's not just Domino's. Starbucks and Chipotle are gaining recognition for their tech pipelines, too. And even though food is the primary business, digital sales for these companies are either equal to or surpassing in-person orders. They're restaurant companies first and foremost, but digital really drives almost everything that they do these days. And it really can transform your your business. If you don't have it, you're just another restaurant company. If you do have it, you have a moat around your business. At Chipotle last quarter, digital sales accounted for 48.5% of sales. Domino's said digital represents 75% of sales, with CEO Rich Allison adding he won't stop pushing until that number is close to 100%. Papa John's is close behind, with digital orders representing over 70% of sales. And at Wingstop, digital sales represented 65% of sales last quarter. Even Starbucks is leaning in, with mobile order and pay making up 26% of transactions. While the focus on digital, look to the all-important margins. Digital orders tend to be higher average ticket, and bringing users into your ecosystem, whether via loyalty programs or in-app, also gives restaurants more access to data to enhance marketing and promotions. Now, these names all have market caps, of course, that pale in comparison to the tech giants of the world, Kelly. But when analysts take a look at their business structure, technology, and its ability to enhance the restaurant experience is key. In fact, BTIG Soleil added that at Domino's, about 50% of corporate employees are statisticians, mathematicians, or somehow related to that company's technology platform. Back over to you. I love that. Let's dwell on that for another moment. Half of McDonald's corporate employees, about headquarters, obviously, are mathematicians, statisticians, or kind of related to this technological field. That's incredible. So digital innovation... At Domino's, yeah. I'm sorry, at Domino's. Thank you, at Domino's. And we know just how much they've set themselves apart from the pack. Digital innovation has been huge for some of the other big fast food companies like McDonald's, Yum! Brands, mm-hmm. 
But not everyone's have gone about this a little bit differently. Not everybody is just relying on teams of, you know, in-house programmers and that kind of thing. I think particularly when your business uh, has more locations, first of all, and second of all, is so heavily reliant on the drive through. It's a bit of a different beast. But McDonald's did break out its digital sales for the first half of the year in its top six markets. Kelly, they did about $8 billion in digital sales, uh, which is a huge number. They've also got a new loyalty program, so that will only increase that number moving ahead. And Yum! Brands also has made uh, several tech acquisitions in recent months tied to social media ordering, AI for better marketing. Uh, So they're also looking to beef up their technology platform. Like you said, they're all kind of hitting it in different ways. But the end goal, of course, is to differentiate, make it a more seamless customer experience, you know, and set yourselves apart from what others out there are offering. Yeah, amazing. No, it's great reporting. Kate, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Our Kate Rogers. Coming up, we're taking a look at the showdown between ARK Invest. Speaking of innovation and technology, does she have food in her portfolio? Kathy Wood uh, taking on famed investor Michael Burry of The Big Short. He's betting against her ARK Innovation ETF, and it is down 27% from its highs, but it's also rebounded from its May lows. Where does ARK go from here as short interest in the fund rises? Stay tuned. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. everybody and welcome back to the exchange markets right now are well off session lows dow was down 153 uh, so far at the bottom of the session but we are down 63 that's about two tenths of a percent now same exact decline to the s&p down eight points the nasdaq hanging on to a slight positive it is up two again we're in a little bit of a holding pattern before the fed minutes come out top of next hour here are some of the movers cannabis stocks are getting a boost after canadian pop producer tilray said it's buying get this convertible debt of u.s rival med men why to give him a path to one day own that american retailer if marijuana becomes legalized here at the federal level you can see the lift tilray up five percent chronos adding three percent the rest of the space in the green as well meanwhile the chinese e-commerce stocks for once are moving higher they're snapping a five-day losing streak the uh, streak the Crane Shares China Internet ETF, along with JD.com, Baidu, and Alibaba, are all in the green. Still, they're down 40 to 60% from recent highs, and we're talking about only about a 3% rebound in KWeb today. But at least one major investor is buying this dip. Tech fund manager Dan Niles admits it hasn't been easy, and he's catching the falling knife. But for more on what he's seeing in Chinese stocks right now, head over to CNBC.com slash pro. In the meantime, let's get to Rahel Sullivan for a CNBC News update. Rahel? Hi, Kelly. Hello, everyone. And here's what's happening at this hour. As Afghanistan's currency falls to record lows, a former central bank governor from the country says that the Taliban does not have access to the country's $9 billion in monetary reserves. He also says that some $7 billion is held by the U.S. Federal Reserve. At Dulles Airport near Washington, Americans fleeing Afghanistan, getting a warm welcome from friends and family. So far, most of the arrivals are U.S. military and contractors. As many as 15,000 Americans do remain in Afghanistan. In New York, the sex abuse trial of R&B star R. Kelly is starting with prosecutors calling him a predator who lured women and children. A defense lawyer is warning jurors, though, that to find the truth, they're going to have to sift through lies from accusers with agendas. And on the news, a wrap-up of the first day of R. Kelly's trial and hints at how each side will present its case. That's tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern. 
and flying high. A 19-year-old pilot is trying to become the youngest woman ever to fly solo around the world. Zara Rutherford took off from Belgium today on her 30,000-mile voyage. She hopes to get more girls interested in aviation and also seek careers in STEM fields. Pretty cool, Kelly. I'll send it back to you. I mean, I don't know if it were my... I, we should interview her parents, Rahel, because I, I got a few questions. Why? That, that's my question. Why? <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it would be really cool if she does it. I think the, the current record for women is 30. The last person who, who did a flight around the world wow. was 30 years old. So she would make history. So that's a pretty good why. Absolutely. I give her a lot of credit. Very brave. I still yeah. I don't even like flying. Rahel, we appreciate Fair. it. Rahel Solomon. Still ahead, crypto adoption soaring around the world. But one firm says don't get wildly bullish on the exchanges just yet. We'll have more on that. Plus drama within DD's boardroom. It's all going to be in rapid fire. Remember, you can catch this show anytime, anywhere by listening to and following the Exchange podcast. We're back in a moment. Welcome back, everybody. Let's catch you up on a couple more stories that should be on your radar right now. It's time for Rapid Fire. Here to break down the headlines today, Dom Chu, Christina Partzinevelis, and our outsider, Casey Newton. He's platformer editor, although he is a CNBC contributor. So welcome, everybody. It's good to have you here. And let's begin with this spat between Kathy Wood and Michael Burry after a filing revealed Burry's short bet against her ARK Innovation ETF. But he may not be the only one. Short interest in ARK had a record of nearly 25 million shares outstanding, according to S3 Partners. And via put options, Burry's short bet was worth about $30 million at the end of last quarter. It's unclear if the position was profitable or whether he even still holds it. Because remember, ARC shares are down about 6% this year. Peak to trough, they've fallen even more than that. So, Christina, it could have been well-timed. We just don't know for sure yet. Right, because it's, it's after the fact. These 13F filings came out. We know it's not just Michael Burry. There's a bunch of other companies that even have their names like uh, More Capital Management, Golden Tree Asset. The list goes on. And so they're all taking these bearish positions against ARC, not necessarily against Kathy Wood. And they're arguing that it's based on the fundamentals. This, uh, all of these companies in her basket are too overvalued. And remember, Number one is a Tesla, and a lot of people have shorted Tesla. Um, the, the big concern, though, too, is you compare the chart just to the S&P 500 uh, year to date, ARC isn't doing so well, right? And the S&P 500 is up 18, what, 18%, something mm-hmm. like that. So that's a concern. But, and I'm going to end with this, if you guys read the big short, Michael Burry in the book highlighted for a year or a year and a half before the financial crisis, how his investors wanted to jump ship. They sure. wanted him to sell, all, uh, get out of those positions for those uh, shorting the mortgage bonds. He stuck with it. Kathy Wood's having a bad time right now, and we're just so quick to forget because her, her arc did very well last year. Right, and Dom, that's you know, the question for Burry. Uh, I, I suppose if we could ask him, we would say, did you just take advantage of the, the run-up that you saw and you're out of this? Or is this a, a much longer-term bet that kind of all the stocks in the innovation world, a little bit of what Bill Smead was arguing earlier this hour, that that's where the froth and the shakeout is going to be? Tactical versus strategic. That's going to be the thing that a lot of traders and investors are going to speculate on with regard to this particular position, and any position, by the way, in some of these more volatile-type stocks and ETFs. And the reason why is because... When you take positions like this, it could just be that you go long or buy these put options because they're cheap on a relative basis to other parts of that option sphere or to the shares themselves. You're looking for that kind of a a gap or a divergence. It could also be that within a day or two or a week or two or a month or two or a a year or two or whatever these put options expire, you could be trading around those positions because there there could be 
dislocations and implied volatility and everything else. So this might not be just an outright bet. We're so quick to just say yeah. somebody buys a put option. It's binary. Right. It doesn't matter because you could actually sell a put option and close the position if it goes in your favor and not necessarily wait till expiration for this thing to be either a yes event or a no event by the time it's done. Here's one of the tweets, uh, Casey, from Kathy Wood. She said, and this is kind of what Christina's saying as well. Kathy said, to his credit, Michael Burry made a great call based on fundamentals and recognized the calamity brewing in the housing and mortgage market. I do not believe he understands the fundamentals that are creating explosive growth and investment opportunities in the invest in the innovation space. Yeah. And, you know, if you look at uh, what Kathy was able to do last year, making a big bet on Zoom, for example, she was right. We are seeing explosive growth, right? The, the Internet, the tech sector broadly is is going through a historic expansion. So has it had maybe a, a rough few months in, in some ways? Sure. But I don't think it's crazy to assume we're going to see more explosive growth from this sector in the, the months to come. All right. And a programming note, Kathy Wood herself will be on Tech Check tomorrow morning. Really looking forward to that. Well, uh, they'll ask her all about the ARC ETFs of course, it's bet against her. And it'd be fun if we could hear from Michael Burry himself at some point soon as well. Next up, global crypto adoption is booming this year, especially in places where the coins are used for more than just trading. According to Chainalysis, the research firm, global adoption of crypto is up more than ninefold in the past year, driven by gains in South Asia and Africa, Vietnam, India, Pakistan. Those are the top three countries where people are using crypto for transactions and savings. The U.S. and China both fell in the rankings thanks to some regulatory issues there. So is the currency of the future already taking hold outside of the U.S.? Casey, this is fascinating because in the U.S. we're held back from its implementation to some extent because it's treated as property. In many other nations, people have made the point this could be one of the only ways for people to protect themselves against you know, currency devaluation, outright theft, you name it. That's right. And if you look at the list where uh, where, where these uh, countries are starting to adopt crypto more broadly, it is often in places where there are authoritarian governments, where there is political instability, where there are concerns about devaluation. And this has sort of long been the promise of crypto, right? You can sort of make an end run around a bad government by having this trustless form of currency. So, you know, if you're looking for a sign that crypto is here to stay, I think one, uh, one thing you might look to is the fact that this sort of... Uh, uh, old prediction for crypto enthusiasts seems to be coming true. Yeah. You know, it's also interesting, Christina, because, I mean, we, we talk a little bit about sort of the vulnerabilities a lot of emerging markets have. I mean, Afghanistan, in a way, illustrates this, but maybe El Salvador more explicitly. There are countries that have kind of looked to the U.S. Uh, to build up their economy. And when the U.S. has proven unreliable, they've often then gone and looked to China instead. And in a weird way, Bitcoin or crypto could be a partner of the West in trying to avoid countries from feeling like the only choice they're left with is to go seek resources from, for instance, China, Russia, you name it. Yeah, which is why maybe the big question revolves around emerging markets currencies and their devaluation as more and more uh, people in at the Bitcoin beach in El Salvador, for example, or Tonga or all these other countries, Nigeria, that are talking about adopting the cryptocurrency. They switch their currency from their respective countries into dollars, which still bodes as a strength for the dollar. And then from there, they put it into cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and hold that possibly as a long-term asset. So it does, uh, it could wreak havoc or create a bad situation for a lot of these currencies. And then the question here for the, the United States and the West is, 
which companies here are going to start adding more and more Bitcoin onto their books? Because we right. know they've hit, uh, you know, what is it, $6.8 trillion of cash. So mm -hmm. when are we going to transfer that into to Bitcoin? And that's we really help roll the ball here. Absolutely. And one of the big bull cases, although it was fun to see Palantir going the gold route <laughs> yesterday in that regard. But sticking with crypto, you'd think while adoption is picking up around the world, the coin bases of the world should be benefiting. But Mizuho just put out a note of caution about the platform, outlining three reasons not to be overly bullish. Uh, according to analysts, Coinbase has seeded Bitcoin market share, retail traders, retail users are trading less, and institutional yields continue to fall. So Mizuho did praise, raise its price target to $220 a share. Coinbase is just about flat, Dom, from its debut in April. But, you know, you think this could be the obvious way to play crypto, sort of like the, the toll collector, if you will, and they're saying not so fast. Well, the tolls are going down. That's the reason why they're saying not so fast. <laughs> they're talking about institutional yields. That's a fancy way of saying that the amount of fees they collect from those institutional traders are going down and will continue to go down in the future, just like they did for stocks and bonds and everything else. <clears throat> Fee compressions, spread compression, whatever you want to call it, is going to be an inevitability. I mean, talk about stocks right now. We're trading for commission-free yeah. right at this stage. Those institutional traders, they do drive a lot more volume, perhaps, but they pay a lot less in fees. And if they're going to continue to rely on fees, then that means that those tolls they collect are going to keep going down and down and down. The one thing they did point out, though, was in the longer-term scheme of what's going to happen with Coinbase and others in crypto is about diversifying away from that fee stream, right? Trying to get right. away from trading commissions. If Coinbase looks different in the future, which it will, the question is how long it takes. If they start to become more like an American Express, right, where you have a banking-type operation, you have financial services tied to it, you have credit card operations tied to it, if Coinbase ultimately looks like that mm -hmm. and diversifies away from those types of products that are being compressed, that could add to the long-term kind of value proposition in companies like Coinbase. Yeah, and you're right on because I think they're starting to launch credit cards or debit cards, you know, something with crypto rewards and so forth, but they're broadening out to become more financial services uh, for crypto and having to diversify that revenue stream. Absolutely right. The tolls are going down. All right, finally, the drama at Didi just won't stop. In a uh, report in the Wall Street Journal, they detail how board members at the ride-sharing giant felt misinformed about the post-IPO crackdown by the Chinese government. Didi's eight-member board includes executives from Tencent and Alibaba, large shareholders in the company, who reportedly were unaware just how exposed Didi was to the regulators. Didi shares, of course, have fallen by almost half from their debut in uh, June. They're down another 5% today to just over $8. Casey, what's the takeaway here? Well, the takeaway is that you should always tell the Chinese government what you're going to do before you file for an IPO, right? Like, I understand why there are going to be members of the DD board that are mad at DD, but I have to wonder how much of that anger should be redirected at the Chinese government. There is a vast crackdown that's going on in the tech sector. It's extremely hard for these companies to predict what's coming next, what they should be doing in the meantime. So I think DD was definitely the first to, to feel kind of the brunt of this and, and may come out the worst of it of any of these companies, but there are a lot of other companies feeling the same heat right now. Christina? Do you question, though, how honest everybody's been? Because the South China Morning Post uh, reported that Tencent, the board members from Tencent, as well as Alibaba, knew about it, and they actually asked the other board members to uh, to defer its New York listing. So the big question is, like, who's being honest? Are they hiding? Are they trying to protect themselves, especially because Alibaba has the fine against them uh, in China? So this regulatory issue is not going to go away. And transparency 
is key, but we're asking that from a Chinese firms. So. Exactly. Dom, I'll give you a final say. This is a much bigger issue than just Chinese tech firms. You just had President Xi Jinping in the last couple of days come out of a massive policy meeting saying that the country's government needs to do more to promote the collective good, to, to take away, to even out some of the income distribution aspects of their economy. So the big tech crackdown is just symptomatic of that bigger move. What these companies and all of the rich people, if you want to call them that in China, have to worry about is that the Chinese Communist Party overall Mm -hmm. is going to take a much harder line on some of these kind of perceived inequalities in their economy. They got to do more there on that front. It's fascinating because right now it seems like a massive loss in overall wealth as opposed to a shifting of it based on sort of the early uh, reactions in financial markets. We'll leave it there for now, guys. A huge thanks. Dominic Chu, Christina Parts and Evelis, and Casey Newton for Rapid Fire today. I want to bring you a market flash. We're just talking about Coinbase. Check out what's going on in CME and CBOE global markets moving in sharply opposite directions as the FT reports. The CME has approached the CBOE about an all-share deal worth around $16 billion. The move higher in CBOE triggered a brief volatility halt with the shares now up about 7.5%, again, on this potential deal offer with consolidation in another area uh, where sort of toll collection, if you want to call it that, uh, will be critically important. Still ahead with the Taliban declaring victory in Afghanistan, the social media companies face a conundrum, how to handle extreme or graphic content from the leaders of the nation, should they even be on their platforms. That'll be next right after this. Welcome back. The Taliban takeover of Afghanistan could have huge implications for the tech world because of social media. Companies are grappling with how to handle extremist or violent content that the new regime may put out or even how to handle the regime itself. Elon Moy is here with that story for us. Elon? Well, Kelly, you're right. The platforms are on high alert for potentially dangerous content, but they're also divided over whether to allow the Taliban on social media at all. Now, Twitter hosts top Taliban spokesman Zabiullah Muhadid, who posts multiple times a day. There's also Mohammed Naeem, who represents the Taliban's political office in Doha, and foreign media spokesman Suhail Shaheen, who tweets in English. Now, together, they have hundreds of thousands of followers, and the number is growing. Their presence is drawing criticism from smaller platforms like Parler. That company tweeted, Big Tech, where you can hear from the Taliban, but not 45. That's, of course, a reference to former President Trump, who has been permanently banned from Twitter. Now, Twitter said the situation in Afghanistan is rapidly evolving and that it will proactively enforce rules prohibiting the glorification of violence, platform manipulation, and spam. But banning the Taliban comes with its own risk. Both Facebook and YouTube say they do not allow the group on their platforms. YouTube said it has terminated accounts that are owned and operated by the Afghan Taliban. Facebook removes content that praises, supports, or represents them. And that position has provoked the Taliban itself. In a news conference, Mujahid called out Facebook specifically as having a double standard on free speech, though, of course, the Taliban severely curtails freedom of expression, especially for women. So, Kelly, this is an impossible dilemma for the big tech platforms. They're having to make these judgment calls in real time while they wait for the international community to reach consensus. Who exactly is making the calls? 
Yeah, so Facebook would like to punt this to sort of international leaders like the UN, for example, to determine you know, whether the Taliban is legitimately in control of Afghanistan. But what we've already seen in the U.S. is that there are differences of opinion with political ramifications. So in the U.S., the Afghan Taliban is sanctioned by the U.S. Treasury Department, but it's not designated as a foreign terrorist organization by the U.S. State Department. So there is some cover there for other platforms to keep content from the Taliban up, even while other sites sanctions from the U.S. Treasury Department. So even though Facebook is trying to avoid the politics, even these international decisions uh, come down to differences of opinion that can have um, global ramifications. Yeah, and it's certainly awkward for them. Elon, thanks very much. Elon Moy in Washington. Coming up, shares of Robinhood are higher today ahead of their first earnings tonight. I think there's going to be earnings. We'll tell you the key figures to watch for next. Welcome back. Robinhood's first quarterly report since going public just three weeks ago, not even, is out after the bell today. Investors will be listening for whether these recent wild trades are just meme stock momentum or based on real possibilities. And they'll also be watching out for any regular, uh, regulatory or legal headwinds. Dan Primack is back with us. He's business editor of Axios and author of the Axios Pro Rata newsletter. Dan, it's good to have you. First of all, I mean, do you know off the top of your head, are they actually going to report er- uh, earnings? Are they profitable? I don't believe so. I mean, they've kind of given a preview of what we're going to see. So I don't believe they're going to be profitable. The the real question isn't so much the Q2 numbers, even though that's what they're obviously reporting. It's do they change the Q3 projections? They had said that they thought they were going to have a worse Q3 than Q2. But it's possible this kind of rebound in crypto that you guys were just talking about might change that. So user count is probably the most important thing, as always, with a lot of these new companies. Uh, Jim was talking about this a lot last hour. Jim Cramer, what do you think we need to see in terms of trends there? You know, just signs that Robinhood has been able to capitalize on this moment with the pandemic and even with the way that the stock's been trading to kind of turn the attention and even the stock run up into sticky users. I I think so. Yes, I think what you just said is true. Yes, that's what we want to see or that's what bulls of Robinhood want to see. I I think what's important to note, though, you know, when we talk about this from a share price perspective, you know, is it going up and it's been going up today or is it going down? There's a pretty good case to make that Robinhood share price is to a certain extent a meme stock. And and I know there's some question about that or disagreement on that. But what Robinhood says today and then what they say in three months from now isn't necessarily correlated to what's going to happen to the stock. The stock itself seems to be as much a momentum Reddit play as, as it is based on any sort of fundamentals. Yeah, it's a, another 10.5% today. Obviously, it had some wild swings. It was interesting because the IPO itself didn't go off well, and it was very important to the platform to get its users into that IPO. So they got maybe a little underwater on day one. Then it shot up, and now it's been a lot more volatile. So you know, I guess we can look back to what's happened with some of the other meme stocks, and frankly, you know, some continue to hold up at pretty high levels. A lot of the others, especially in the, in the SPAC world, have really struggled this year. They have. I mean, look, compared to most of the meme stocks, not all of them, but most of them, Robinhood has a much more uh, basic, not, basics the wrong term maybe, but has a much more understandable business model. You know, it's not a turnaround play where you're hoping, you know, people come back to movie theaters in a year or two years. We know what Robinhood is, but these questions are... A, it's got lots of competition. Two, it's reliance on crypto. And then three, this big thing, which is the payment for order flow issue, which uh, it seems might not be, uh, you know, addressed anymore by regulators. I'll be very curious if an analyst asks about that and asks specifically what role Robinhood thinks its lobbyists did or didn't play in possibly kicking that can down the road. Well, and to your point, I remember when we spoke right around the IPO, it was the same time that Weber and Traeger, the grill companies had listed. And you were saying, listen, at least with the grill makers, you know what their business is 
is going to be in a year or two. But with Robinhood, it's an open question. If the SEC cracks down on pay for order flow, they'll have to find other ways to make money. Well, but like you said, maybe that that threat is receding somewhat. Is that the read that you're getting from Washington? That, that's the read we're getting. And, and obviously, devil's in the details on all of these pieces of legislation. We haven't seen any of this yet. But it seems that that's getting pushed back. And honestly, I do think, even though, as I said, I, I believe the share price is is largely driven by sentiment, not by not by actual fundamentals or rules or regulations. I do think the fact that that's no longer front and center today, as it was when the company went public, has probably helped boost that share price a bit. I'm going to th- 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 call an audible here, uh, whatever the term is, Dan. Since we have you, just a few moments ago, CME and CBOE were reported to be uh, possibly in a, in a deal where CME would be looking to acquire CBOE. I, the reason that I ask is that it's sort of analogous to the Robinhood discussion. We're ultimately talking about, you know, trading behavior and platforms. In the case of CME, do you think they would face any regulatory pushback over trying to complete an acquisition like this? Again, all hypothetically speaking, but obviously CBOE shares are popping on this. All hypothetically, I should note that I, I first heard about this from you while I had my headphones on listening to the last <laughs> segment. Uh, yes, I, I mean, the, the short answer is, yeah. Uh, I mean, it, regulators right now are looking at every major deal in every major sector. And I know we focus a lot on on tech antitrust. We, we talk so much about tech antitrust. But the regulators, DOJ, et cetera, have been very clear that they don't only view this as a tech issue or that they don't view consolidation only as a tech issue. They view this across sectors and, and financial sectors, whether you want to call that a tech sector or not, is certainly part of that. Wasn't didn't they uh, push back on the Willis deal? Didn't we just see that fall apart recently? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Correct. Yeah, another industry that's not usually one that you hear a lot of public outrage about, uh, nevertheless. All right, Dan, thanks. I appreciate it. Rolling with us, as always, Dan Primek of Axios uh, joining us this hour. NVIDIA is also going to be reporting. It's outpacing the broader semis this year, and its earnings after the bell could keep that momentum going. We'll get the key numbers to watch right after this. Welcome back. NVIDIA reports after the bell and analysts expecting strong results as shares sit just about 5% from its July all-time high. Josh Lipton is here with some of the key numbers to watch. Josh? So, Kelly, it's been a good year for NVIDIA bulls. That stock has ripped higher, surging about 50% now so far in 2021. That far, far outperforms the SMH, the ETF that tracks the chips. And also looking for EPS of 101 from NVIDIA today after the bell on revenue of $6.33 billion. But Chris Rowland of Susquehanna says one big number for him, Q2 data center revenue. The street wants to see $2.27 billion there. Investors focus on that because those chips carry higher margins in gaming. And speaking of gaming, NVIDIA's other big segment, Chris Rowland says he expects another strong quarter there. But there are questions about that quarter ahead as economies reopen. And remember, those chips are also used for cryptocurrency mining, too. With all the volatility around crypto, it will be interesting to see how that impacts demand for NVIDIA's products. Crypto mining isn't a core market for NVIDIA, but it can help or hurt results on a given quarter. Back to you all. Josh, do you ever get the feeling they're trying to kind of distance themselves from that narrative, at least? Because obviously we saw for a period of time where they traded quite tightly uh, crypto and NVIDIA, but obviously NVIDIA has so much else going on and going going for it, frankly. Well, they did actually introduce new products, remember, Kelly, just for crypto miners. Um, and those products, you know, miners are going to use those chips to handle those transactions. So actually today after the call, I think there'll be a lot of questions for the CFO about what sales for those chips actually look like. Yeah, impressive. All right, Josh, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Josh Lipton, NVIDIA reports after the bell this afternoon. That does it for the exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. 
People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.